Today's scripture reading is from the book of Genesis, chapter 4, beginning at verse 1. Now the man knew his wife Eve, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have produced a man with the help of the Lord. Next she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain a tiller of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel, for his part, brought of the firstlings of his flock their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his countenance fell. The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry, and why has your countenance fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is lurking at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must master it. Cain said to his brother Abel, Let us go out to the field. And when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is your brother Abel? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, What have you done? Listen, your brother's blood is crying out to me from the ground, and now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you till the ground, it will no longer yield to you its strength. You will be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is greater than I can bear. Today you have driven me away from the soil, and I shall be hidden from your face. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and anyone who meets me may kill me. Then the Lord said to him, Not so. Whoever kills Cain will suffer a sevenfold vengeance. And the Lord put a mark on Cain so that no one who came upon him would kill him. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Gracious God, you are the Lord. You are the one who comes looking. Even when we turn away, you do not turn your face away from us. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O oh God, our strength, our rock, and our redeemer. Amen. So here we are, again, continuing our sermon series on the book of Genesis, the first book of the Bible. Last week we heard the story of the fall of humanity, of Adam and Eve's eating of the forbidden fruit, and they're being cast out of the Garden of Eden with no way to return. And this week, we get our first taste of what life is like outside the Garden. It starts out quite lovely. Actually, we've got a new life, the birth of Adam and Eve's first child, Cain, followed by his younger brother, Abel. Especially touching, I find, are Eve's words, I have produced a man with the help of the Lord. And as strange as that grammatically might sound, as she holds Cradle's newborn Cain, she gets 
at that sense of transcendent wonder and gift of looking into the eyes of our own children for the first time. These children, Cain and Abel, are signs of God's graciousness that continues even though paradise itself has been left behind. It may not be Eden exactly, but blessings still abounds. Soon enough, though, the fallen world peeks through in all of its ugliness. One day the family comes together for worship. I guess the family that prays together does not stay together necessarily. Each brother brings a sacrifice to show their dedication to God. Cain's a farmer, so he brings a case of vegetables, while Abel, a shepherd, brings the firstlings of his flock, a prime leg of lamb. Long story short, God, for reasons not entirely clear to us, prefers Abel's meat to Cain's vegetables. A God after my own heart, you could say. (laughs) But this sets Cain off. The envy burns so hot in him that Cain figures he's got to do something about it, and so he invites Abel to the field under the pretense of helping with the harvest, and when his back's turned, Cain cracks his brother over the head with a rock, staining the field with his blood. He kills his brother, and God sends him into exile away from everyone and everything he's ever known. It all starts with the joy and hope of new beginnings, but then ends with the destruction of a family, the murder of one brother, and the loss of one by the family forever. I'll admit that it was hard not to read this scripture without this past week's headlines in mind. No doubt you've all heard by now the terrible news from London, Ontario this past week where a young man, Nathaniel Veltman, purposely hit and killed four members of the Offsall family and left their nine-year-old in critical condition. And the details have not yet to be released, but authorities believe that this heinous act was motivated by hatred or fear of Muslims, and he's charged with four accounts of first-degree murder. No doubt this young man's trajectory mirrors that of Cain, beginning with the germ of disappointment, then resentment, then anger, which unchecked, eventually led to murder, to the destruction of a family and the wounding of his own family forever, too, and has resulted in his own condemnation and alienation as a murderer. Like Cain, this young man who was once held as a beautiful and wondrous gift in his own mother's arms, now will have to live the rest of his life with the mark of criminality as an outcast on account of the shedding of innocent blood. It's hard not to see the parallels between his story and Cain's. And you know, of course, it was heartening to hear how swiftly and forcefully this act was denounced by Canadians of all kinds and all political persuasions, and rightly so. Not only is it a breaking of the law and a breach of the values most Canadians hold dear, But from a Christian vantage point, it's also a direct offense against the righteous and holy God. One of the worst kind. 
one which, like Cain, will have life-altering consequences. Now, as right as we are to condemn this man's actions, though, we would be amiss if we were to just write this incident off as an irrational, isolated incident of human depravity. That this person is some kind of a unique monster. We'd be mistaken if we just leave it there, the story there, and our only response to this event is condemnation, as right as condemnation may be, at least as students or potential students of sacred scripture. You see, the story of Cain and Abel isn't simply about how bad it is to kill innocent human beings or about how we shouldn't murder people in cold blood. We already know this. It's meant to say something about human nature in general and what it means to live outside the Garden of Eden. And this is clear in the short sentences between Cain's disappointment and the deathly deed. Cain's face has fallen at the news that his brother's, brother Abel has bought, brought a more perfect platter to the altar. Here God immediately comes to Cain. God comes to Cain. God being God knows Cain's struggle. God encourages him to move on from this brewing jealousy and hatred. God reassures him if he does well, he will be accepted. But God also issues a warning if Cain can't let go of his antipathy towards his brother. Sin, God says. Sin is lurking at the door. Sin is lurking at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must master it. Now, often we think of sins as, of sin as sins, right? As the bad things we do. Lie, cheat, steal, murder. These ain't good, of course. But here in this text, sin is more than just that. I like how a Jewish translation puts it. It says, at the tent flap, sin crouches. And for you it is longing. But you will rule over it. God warns Cain that sin is like the snake in the garden, coiled up in the long grass, waiting for its moment to strike. If he doesn't watch where he steps, it'll sink its teeth into him. And that's exactly what happens. Cain either ignores God's warning or doesn't believe it, and it poisons his family, his life, his future, everything. Here sin is portrayed as a power that exists outside of us just waiting for its opportunity to enter in and grab hold. It's like a gravitational force that pulls us away from God and God's good purposes for creation. And if we don't keep constant vigilance, God says, it'll taint everything. Everyone we love and left unchecked, it'll eat us alive. Now, of course, Few of us here, sitting in the sanctuary or tuning in online, have out and out killed anyone. Maybe the case, I don't know who's watching. But like Cain, we've all let our small disappointments 
and resentments grow into anger and hatred and more, haven't we? I've certainly known this in my own life where I've let one slight or hurt fester and multiply. How about you? Maybe not to the point of murder, but we've certainly let envy, greed, sadness overpower us to the point of wounding others and alienating us from the people we love. We may not have gone the whole way, but we've had a taste of it. And this is the reason why the New Testament teaches that to hate another human being is on par with murder because it knows the trajectory. It knows where hate heads. A little seed of resentment may not always grow up into a full-blown murder, but it gets that much closer to the point of choking out everything else. And so if we're honest with ourselves... We know that given the right circumstances, the right situation, we too could end up like this young man who committed this terrible crime. So we'd be mistaken if our only response to the events of this past week and others like it is only condemnation, if it's condemnation without self-reflection without self-examination. Because in one way or another, we're all Cain. Sin lurks waiting for each of us. If we say we have no sin, as we heard before the prayer of confession, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. And the truth is not in us. The same sin that propelled Cain to kill his brother prowls up and down the hallway of each and every human heart and we'd be naive to believe otherwise and I know it sounds pretty dark I mean you're thinking this is a united church why are we talking about sin so much this morning man I haven't even got into my afternoon where I was planning to have some real fun right sounds like a bit of an endless on our toes or die struggle against evil. Like God says to Cain, it's got to be mastered lest it masters us. It sounds kind of bleak and like a bit of an ultimately exhausting way to live. Bad news all around. I know it sounds that way. But as pessimistic as it may be about the human condition, there is something that the Bible is optimistic about or hopeful about. And we sort of see this glimpse out, come out after Cain's, uh, after Cain's condemnation. After the murder, God exiles Cain to this place called the land of Nod, meaning the place of wandering. After everything blows up and he's sent away from his family and his friends and everything he knows, he can't, go back to the, he can't even go back to farming because the land is cursed and he couldn't grow anything if he tried. And I mean, Cain thinks that it is the absolute end for him. He figures it's a death sentence that God has turned his face away for good and he pleads with God. 
saying, surely this will destroy me. But it's not the case, right? Not so, God says. And I mean, if there are exclamation points there, I mean, there's no exclamation points in Hebrew. So when the translators put one in place, you've got to really think like emphasis. Not so. God does this curious thing, the text tells us, and he marks Cain. We don't know what it means that Cain is marked. I mean, is it a tattoo on his forehead? Or just something spiritual that people could sense just by looking at him? But regardless, we're told that this mark means that anyone who kills Cain will bring a sevenfold destruction on themselves, which is to say, nobody would touch him. Cain, who was consumed by resentment, anger, and hatred. Cain, who shrugged off divine warning, killed his brother and pretended as if he didn't. Cain, who destroyed his family and blew up his own life. If anybody deserves death, it's him. Even so, he's sent out with a promise of life. Why is that? I mean, it doesn't seem fair. And Walter Brueggemann, one of my favorite scholars and the, uh, my son's namesake, actually. So you can tell what a big dork I am. Uh, <laughs> Walter Brueggemann says this. The protective mark on Cain from verse 15 is less than resurrection. It's less than resurrection. But it is an anticipation of resurrection. It announces that God has not lost interest in the murderer, nor has given up on him. It's an anticipation of resurrection. It announces that God has not lost interest in the murderer, nor given up on him. As relentless as it may be, the Bible seems to think that there is something even more relentless than sin. And that something that is more relentless than sin is grace. Grace. God's unmerited, one-way, unconditional love for sinners. As deep as Cain gets, God goes deeper. As powerful as original sin may be, there is an original blessing that is even more so, Christian commentators throughout history have connected God's marking of Cain with how we're marked as Christ's forever in baptism. We're promised that though we're sinners, we're forgiven, broken yet blessed. Though we're dead to sin, we're raised to new life in Christ. The Bible may be extremely pessimistic about the human condition, about the all-pervading power of sin, yet it's also incredibly optimistic about God and God's power to overcome it in us and others by the Spirit. God's power for love, grace, forgiveness, and mercy is so much greater than the world's sin. And knowing God's grace means that we have no need to resent anyone 
anymore. From the smallest interpersonal slight to the biggest emotional bruise. From our friendliest Muslim neighbors to our most wicked and broken, hostile enemies. We have no need to hate anyone anymore, not even a hater worthy of hate, like Nathaniel Veltman. We need not give in to fear or anger or any kind, nor give ourselves over to death, because by God we are given the strength, mercy, and forgiveness to do so. And we're given a way that leads not to death and exile and destruction, but the way of resurrection, new life, the way of grace. The truth is that one of the most persistent and powerful mysteries in our lives is the power of sin and that in yielding the smallest amount of space in our hearts will lead only to further brokenness and destruction. We know this not only because we've seen it in acts of senseless violence, but because we've also lived it. It's not only powerful and persistent, it's pervasive, touching each of us in varying degrees and shades, ready to pounce at any moment. And yet, the good news, my friends, is that this is a power that can be overcome, is overcome by the greater power of grace. Sin may lurk at the door, but we can master it. We will master it, because it's already been mastered by Christ and in Christ. Wherever sin abounds, in the words of the Apostle Paul, wherever sin abounds, grace abounds all the more so. And that, my friends, is good news, worthy of thanking God about each and every day. Amen. Whoa!